Welcome to Pints and Politics. In addition to this podcast, Pints and Politics is also broadcast every week, Thursdays at 8 p.m. on Trent Radio, CFFF 92.7 FM in Peterborough, Ontario. You can also stream us live from the Trent Radio website at that time. We explore all things political with a focus, albeit far from exclusive, on life in Peterborough and in Ontario. Since March, we've been gathering together online for these discussions. The discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded on Monday, August 24th. If you're listening as a podcast episode, each episode will be, again, 30 minutes. Joining me for this online discussion is our veteran politics panel. You know them all. Uh, first of all, we have property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, then Curve Lake First Nation Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Committee Chair Sean Conway, playwright and math teacher Tim Etherington. Next, we have a Peterborough This Week journalist and former mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland, then campaign manager and consultant Lauren Hunter, and closing out our roster is editor, writer and podcaster Donald Fraser. So thanks to all for uh, joining me online today. Now, we're going to start the first half hour with a uh, an examination of the imminent uh, school opening in Ontario, uh, of course in Peterborough, and the issues associated with that. So uh, the first voice you'll hear will be Sean Conway. So for anyone in, in the Ontario government to really take a look at uh, First Nations plans for return to school and with early learning centers, because we're the ones that are leading the way. It's not the government and it's not the school boards. What are you doing? What what is it? What how are the First Nations approaching this, Sean? We're we're actually listening to healthcare professionals when it comes to the implementation of of any return to work or or return to school policies. We've held back our even possibility of opening the doors of our daycare and school by at least two viral cycles. Online learning will be uh, supported and enhanced. We're hiring uh, half a dozen new teachers for our school with 40 children. So we'll have uh, much expanded uh, teaching staff to work online with our students, to focus on land-based education and getting our kids outside and being a part of the community and, and really focusing in on connection to community and family as a, as a way to learn curriculum. And, and to really think outside the box when it, when it comes to things. So even when we do have children that are returning to the schools, they'll be there once or twice a week with the remainder being done online. They'll be strictly cohorted with groups of six in the class. And that's, that's our plan moving forward. And even beyond that, I think that it's safe to say that if there's even a single case of COVID-19 in the Peterborough public health catchment area, our schools will not be opening. Right. Now, right now, there are five active cases in Peterborough. Uh, I assume, or four, that I, I am assuming that the public board and the separate school board here is tracking this. But should I assume that if case numbers start to go up, that the boards will act? Or is it going to be guinea pig time? It's guinea pig time. It's guinea pig time. There's no... I... I Fortunately, have no children in the school anymore, but 
what I don't understand, and I've been trying to follow this as best I can, is how the government expects the boards to put into place any reasonable program in a couple of weeks. I mean, the, 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 it seems to me the it's like jelly to the wall. Things keep changing almost every day. And 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 how do you deal with the boards who, for example, don't have a a uh, a good slush fund in which to you know yeah. those boards that don't have the necessary reserves and uh, and and they are tend to be in the north. They said and they tend to be Catholic boards, not all, but there's apparently at least forty boards in this province that do not have adequate reserves to implement. What the, what the province is trying, and I don't understand how they expect this to happen in a couple of weeks. Am I am I being thick here? Or what? No, I think you're absolutely right. You even look at the backlog in the infrastructure uh, in Ontario schools that's well needed. You know, I always respected Liz Sandals as an education minister for the Liberals, but you know, she had a tendency to uh, take care of her own writing before she would think about the rest of Ontario and the, the conservatives are, have done nothing to boost the ability for schools, school boards or staff to access infrastructure dollars for what's needed. So if you have schools like Kenner with huge backlogs in, in repairs that need to be done or named to say any school anywhere, if how are they supposed to make up money that they never had in the first place and say, Oh, you can access your rainy, rainy day fund, smash the piggy bank. But the piggy bank was gone after Harris. Yeah. And it's the, it's the, the rich get uh, the rich, the, the prosperous, the prosperous boards. Exactly. And it's the ones who don't have, who have suffered all through everything that are. <laughs> so let's talk about rural infrastructure. Okay. Um. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. Good point. Yes. Yeah. Orange Corners is dark right at the moment. No, I, I just, uh, you know, I, th- I think by and large, uh, I think uh, both the federal and our provincial and provincial governments, I can't be too broad in my statement, but I think generally speaking, in many areas, they've done best they can with, yeah. with uh, dealing with the epidemic. And, uh, and that's why the federal government, for example, before, and who knows where the polls are at right now, I don't. But we're getting pretty high marks because they were dealing well with COVID. And I think most, a lot of people feel that Ford has been doing well with COVID. But I think the rubber is hitting the road right now with, uh, with, with schools. I, I don't, I don't uh, have kids, so I am kind of uh, on the periphery of this conversation. And I agree, Sylvia, that you know, most governments were getting good marks for a long time. Uh, I think Canadians and Ontarians were just wanted to have that comfort that the government was there and they were doing what they could. But I feel like wasted all this time. Like, what has the Minister of Education been doing since the six months? I don't understand. You know, I know that initially we locked down and all the messaging was about buying time for the healthcare system so that if there was a surge, they would be ready. But for the love of Pete. Why wasn't the Ministry of Education taking that same approach, you know, and they kept sort of delaying it, you know, two weeks we'll talk and two weeks we'll talk. And then here we are, it's the end of August. It is completely unreasonable for school boards to have to jump through these hoops at this late date. We've seen situations like in Toronto where the school board has submitted a plan to the ministry and then the ministry comes back and says, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, And specifically, I believe, when it came to smaller class sizes. Yes. This is something that the Ford government was dealing with before the pandemic, was trying to increase class sizes. And I just, I have this 
sinking feeling in the bottom of my stomach that this is a political issue that they don't want to give on because if they reduce class sizes right now in the pandemic, perhaps they think it'll be harder to go back to bigger class sizes later. And I, I mean, that, that speculation, I don't have anything to base uh, I think yes, your yes. speculation may be dead on. And they say, they keep saying, Lauren and everyone, you know, we're listening to the scientists. The hospital for sick kids and various other of the groups they have consulted have told them that social distancing and smaller class sizes are critical. And they've ignored that. Yes. And, and, and social distancing has been redefined by the school boards as a meter. Now, all, all the uh, public health uh, leaders I have heard said, no, two, me- two meters necessary. And the school boards have come in and said, no, no, one meter. Very, very important correction on that. If you don't mind, continue as someone on the ground. I'm going into the classroom two weeks tomorrow. Uh, It's not the boards. It's the ministry that said social distancing is one meter. Um, School boards have done a variety of different things. Listen, I could go on, obviously, for two hours about this. This is my reality uh, that I'm about to face. And I know I'm not being supported by my government, but I'm not going to waste anyone's time going through that. Lauren said something very important. Uh, the conservative government gave itself a mandate to cut the education budget in real dollars, you know, in terms of inflation dollars. And that was part of what they wanted to do. And that's why there, were, there was labor unrest last year. So they're loath to spend any money. The only way to do this properly would be you'd have to spend a bucket load of money. There, there's no other way around it. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that's okay. So the, there's no yes. other way to do this without spending a bucket load of money. And I appreciate that there isn't an infinite supply of money. I recognize that. Although when you hire 200 additional cops and you give OLG half a billion dollars, it does speak to your priorities. But you know, as a teacher, let me let me recognize that there is a real dilemma here. That we can't get our economy going until we have a place to stash our kids, and particularly. To have a place to stash the kids of poor people and lower middle class people because uh, the economy needs those people to show up and work their hourly wage jobs to keep everything humming. So, you know, we are caught in that dilemma. And I, I, as much as I would like to be 100 um, percent concerned about my own safety, I recognize that my profession does ask me to make some sacrifices. So, you know, I, I, that's part of it. However, we have a government and a minister of education who has absolutely no understanding of education. Mache was a private school kid. His, his associate minister was homeschooled. They think all you do in school is stand in front of a classroom and read from a textbook and people take down notes. And their discussions around synchronous learning and such uh, betray that. Um, however, what really frustrates me is if I'm being asked to put myself at risk, I would like at least the government to be straight with us. And I'm getting very uncomfortable with the cherry picking of data, the manipulation of facts, and the attempt to uh, assign blame before it happens. Uh, That doesn't give me confidence. That means that internally they've modeled this thing and they know there are going to be sicknesses and deaths. And they're trying to game out the reaction to that. And let me just give you a couple examples. I hand it off, and I, I think Jenny should speak up. We haven't heard from her much. <laughs> um, is uh, a couple of things that they keep repeating in press conferences are very frustrating. Ford and Lecce keep repeating about um, one to fifteen teacher ratio in kindergarten. Well, well, that's true because the average class size is thirty, and you have two educators in the classroom, so that's thirty-two people in the classroom. So mm-hmm. technically, what they're saying is true, but they're spinning the facts. And 
this is the thing that everyone should be scared of. Doug Ford got a lot of credit, you know, in the first month because basically because he didn't pee on the carpet, you know, because he, he did the basic things he was told to do. But since then, this government has opened bars and strip clubs and sort of said everything can go back to normal. And now they're trying to sell a school by manipulating facts and spinning it and giving us a bill of goods. And, and that's the thing we should all be afraid of. We, you know, schools at some point have to reopen. Kids have to go back. People have to go back to work. But we need the government to be honest about it. And they're not being honest. And that's what should terrify every parent out there. Sure, if I can just ask, what's our estimate of the percentage of parents, of families who are just going to say, no, my kid is not going back. They're either going to homeschool them or just take them out for a year. I mean, as I said to a, a parent not 48 hours ago, you know, around the world, kids kids miss the odd year of school for whatever reason. And, you know, the sun keeps coming up. Life keeps going on. I mean, compared with the risk of losing people to COVID-19, what's the problem of keeping kids home? And I... I Get because the point about be, economy. But, I mean, economy compared to a human life seems to be pretty low, you know, a false trade. Bill, I agree, but that's that's the decision that's being made. The government won't fund child care. They won't properly fund education. And it just, I said, if they were honest about it, that would be one thing. Sorry, I, Jenny, I okay. think you were going to say. No, no. No, that's okay. Sure. I, just, I want to say a couple of things just to spice things up a bit. And before I do, I really like you all as people. I really do. But I have a couple of... <laughs> of questions that I would like some clarification on from the teachers in the crowd before the pandemic hit and the teachers were out on their rotating strikes. One of their sticking points, if I recall correctly, was the whole concept of e-learning and it wasn't good for students and they weren't going to be learning the same and it was taking away jobs away from teachers, et cetera, et cetera. What I want to know is what is so different now about e-learning? Like, I, I kind of feel like now teachers are supporting that concept because it works for them now. But six months ago, it was one of the, the strike platforms that they were out on. So I'm having a difficult time reconciling that in my head. The other issue that I'm having a difficult time reconciling is when the pandemic first hit, I would like to know, where was the teachers unit union with the girls working the drive throughs every morning and the people checking out the groceries? Everybody is just as important in this and everybody has a role to play in all of this. And I feel like there hasn't been or there like proper consideration given to all of these people that have continued to get up and go to work every day and keep the economy going. The bottom line is for those people, the reason why they did it is if they don't work, they don't get paid. And that's the big difference. And I think it's important that we recognize that. Jenny, if, I can, if I can respond to your argument. It's easy to make argument. the de decision <laughs> to stay at home when you're guaranteed your income. So, Jenny, first of all, one quick thing that needs, like, clearly the government's media approach is working. There is a big difference between online learning in a pandemic and e-learning. The issue with e-learning was they wanted to institute mandatory, mandatory e-learning modules one a year in high school. That's a very different thing than, than in a once-in-a-lifetime emergency where we find other strategies to deliver learning. Uh, teachers actually do want to go to work and do it safely. Uh, the best comparison is the drive-through. The young woman working at the drive-through had far more protections and far more protocols in place 
than any teacher is being offered right now. I would like to go back yes. to school and I would like yes. to get to work. I'm looking forward to seeing my kids again because they get a much better education when I see them in person. I can do a much more effective job. However, so what, real- so what have you as a teacher or your union suggested or what is it that you think you require that you are being told you cannot implement? Temporarily hiring enough teachers that we can lower the, the cohort in each class so we can practice social distancing. It's as easy as that. If you think this is the union problem, then you are exactly the target audience of Stephen Lecce and Doug Ford. I am not being bamboozled by some political propaganda. I am just like, you know, Joe Blow watching everything from the periphery. So that's, you know, and I'm not the only one that kind of takes those things from it. I just, I, you know, and I think that's why sometimes it's difficult for teachers to understand why they maybe don't have the public support that they deserve. And I do believe that education is important. And my daughter was educated in the public school system and it's super important, but I feel like, like maybe like Lauren mentioned, and I don't know if this is what she meant or not. Like this is a political tug of war that's going on. I'm not super convinced that it has 100% to do with safety. Okay, so let me, no, what, once again, let me repeat once something. again, this is very important. We are let talking. Me this one more time, one more time, let me repeat. Yeah. You said, what do the unions want? And demonizing the unions is precisely adopting the Doug Ford, Stephen Lecce But setting that I've aside for a, a minute, member. setting that I'm aside for a minute, what, what, what do educators yeah. want? Hire a temporary, co- a temporary amount of teachers to reduce the cohort in each class. It's as simple as that. It would cost yeah. money. But it's as simple as that. And we could go back to somewhat of a regular education. But if you're not going to put dollars into it, then we end up with the mess we have. And you do things like try to convince everyone it's the union's fault, which is exactly how the government is trying to set this yes. up. And, and I should really point out that most teachers thought that the last round of e-learning through the pandemic was terrible. Yeah. Uh, they yes. lost students galore. Yes. High school teachers were, were having their students drop out like crazy. There was, there was no real engagement. It was a failed failed, failed experiment, um, when they're, when, what they're planning on rolling out next, we still don't know. We're, we're, we're passing judgment on things, and teachers have not been brought to the table to even know what their semester is going to look like next year. It is a lot of political spin, and, and, and it, quite frankly, I, I get, I'm, I'm mind-blown when I see blanket statements made about about teachers and and them not caring for students or the school communities uh, because every teacher I know is a very passionate uh, community member who cares for their students cares for the school community and it kind of makes me wonder when I see these blanket statements um, the mindset of the people who are who are making them it's like is is there is there a disconnect between loving your job loving what you do loving loving kids loving your community I, I don't I don't get it because that's why most teachers are in this game. Uh, and there is a massive, massive difference between what teachers are going to be facing in the classroom and virtually every other frontline worker. No so, other yeah. frontline worker. I'll give yeah, you a good I, example. I, I, listen, my daughter was just in the hospital. Here? If I may, may just I finish this off. My daughter just was in the hospital. So they go one and one on a room. You're not allowed to touch the kid. No. Uh, you'll, no. you'll talk often from behind glass. Teachers are going to be put into rooms with 25 to 30 kids. Now, it was just announced today that those kids in high school are not even rotating for the day. Those kids are staying in the room for the full day. 
one class, one day. So what other frontline worker is in a confined room with very little ventilation? Because if you've been to most of the schools in Peterborough, you'll know there's not a yes. lot of high HVAC material going on there. Locked in a room with, with kids for the entire day at a time. And those kids are not going to sit on their butts. If you've ever been to a classroom with high school kids, <laughs> they're not they're, they're not saints. They're not going to listen. So there's there's a, some weird preconceived notions out there that I, I think Tim is quite right. I, I think the Kool Aid is being drunk. May I? May I? Sylvia, go ahead. May I, may I introduce another group into this discussion? I have every sympathy with the teachers. Teachers have made a tremendous difference in my life, and I, and I sympathize. But we haven't talked about the kids. Oh yeah. And about what they may be exposed to. And, and more and more, we're getting information on even young children and the after effects of, 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 having, of having the virus, even though it may not be active now. There's more medical information coming out all the time about the children. And so there are other players in this. There are the teachers, definitely. But there are also the kids that are teaching. And there are the people who are, and the staff who are working in the schools. But and you the know, families we're of the kids. talking about the teachers. We haven't talked about the kids. Well, and, and it's funny because a, a piece I did on social media a week or so ago, maybe two weeks. Uh, so I talked. Yes, about, I sent that out. Yeah, yeah I, I talked about uh, the, the power of contagion, and I talked about how eventually uh, this turns uh, into uh, factors of, of multiplying itself. It's 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 like you know the old Pantene commercial. I told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on and so on. What what we've done is uh, the government has put us through a very rigorous very, very rigorous social distancing campaign, which I think is, is a great move. And what they're doing right now is, is tossing that out the window. And we did some math on it before. I'm not going to take you through the math, but you, you got to remember that each one of these kids is in a room with 28 other kids. Uh, chances are they have a sibling. And if a sibling is in another class, they're in a class with 28 different kids. So a family of two, okay, has, has all of a sudden this cohort of two uh, classes of, say, 28 kids. But, you know, it, it doesn't really stop there because each kid in, in those classes probably has a sibling as well in a different class. What we've done is we've actually eliminated um, social distancing completely and just kind of made a big pool of students. Um, and, and, and this has got implications far beyond just students, which I think is pretty atrocious when, when we're using them as guinea pigs to say, well, we, we did all the social distancing, but uh, oops, here we go, uh, because those kids go home, and, and then, then it's the parents. It's, so this is, this is really, we're, we're just, we're creating a, a Petri dish. The, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, um, is what impact is it going to be? Uh, we're lucky in Peterborough, we are relatively distanced from major urban centers. Uh, once you start getting into Toronto, you know, your bets are, are, are getting a lot, lot higher for, for having contagions spread in, in a significant way. Um, hey, Don, if I, if I can ask, what about other jurisdictions? What's happening in other places apart from Ontario? Everyone in the Western world is going through this right uh, now. From Well, the reports we hear... Has anyone got Canada, it right? If we're sticking to Canada, it's, it's, it's Ontario is... is probably scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to how they are handling uh, the possibility of, of contagion. And, you know, that, that, that speaks for itself. Are there any plans that you are aware of as what happens if you have to close the school down? 
have a plan for that? I, I can I can speak well. I can speak to what the protocols are from from KPR and PVNC. Right. You know, both of them have adopted uh -huh. something uh, different variations on a, what's known as a quadmester schedule, where Donald points out that students, high school students, and sorry, I'm speaking to high school students right now. Our high school students will take one course a day, either. I think in KPR, they're going to do it uh, a full week in one course. P PVNC right now is looking at uh, rotating every other day with a, with two courses until halfway through the semester and, and proceed from there, which, by the way, actually is a safer way of doing it than having kids uh, go through hallways. Um, even a small high school has a thousand people and in includes staff and students and everything. There are over a thousand people in these buildings. And when they fill the hallways, it's exactly what you think it would be. It's it's a, it's, it's crazy. Um, so that's all good. Um, but if the reason they're also doing that is so they can contact trace to a certain degree. So if one child becomes sick, they can identify the cohort they were in. So the cohorts won't mix all that much. So that's actually you know, not a bad plan. I think most school boards are starting to adopt something like that. They're doing it on the fly uh, because right. there's very little direction, but at least, you know, there, there, there has been thought put into it and, and that's not a bad one. But the the problem is, as many have pointed out, is how leaky schools are. The school I work yes. in is, is in Bowmanville. And I was talking to a friend the other day and just off the top of my head thinking of how many Peterborough schools are affected by employees at that school in Bowmanville. And it was most of the high schools and a whole bunch of elementary schools that I could tick off from people I know well enough to know where their kids go. Um, so, you know, listen, I, I do want to return to one quick thing without laboring it. This is a real dilemma. The, there is a reason why kids need to go back to school. There's several reasons why kids need to go back to school. So it is something that needs, it can't just be brushed aside. You know, we, we need kids in school to work. We need kids in school for their, for their educational growth, for their emotional support. There's a lot of good reasons for it. I just want to have an honest conversation about it. I don't want to spend the conversation pointing fingers and trying to figure out who's the boogeyman in all this, right? This is a tough, tough thing. We've been facing tough challenges for five months, and we need to do the same effort on this one. And, and one, of the one of the things that teachers have been long, long lobbying for is, is smaller class sizes. Um, and the advantage to smaller class sizes uh, is, is myriad. Uh, number one is you actually have teachers who are able to educate kids in ways where they can identify that child's needs, uh, their learning styles, all kinds of things. Uh, there are times right now where you have a parent-teacher interview, and, and the teacher is not able to answer questions about your child in ways that are satisfactory. The reason for that is because they have 30 kids in their class, and, and they're really unable to, to get a handle on, on, on the behavior, on, on the psychology, on the, on the learning styles of these kids. And smaller classes help that. Uh, you get more one-on-one -on -one interaction. You get better small group action. Um, you have ability to use different learning styles in your, in your classroom to address the different learning needs. There are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Right now, <laughs> um, the bulk of teachers are, are asking for one thing. They're not asking to stay home. They're not asking to shut down schools. They're asking for something they've been asking for for a long, long time, which is smaller class sizes. And if we are really, really, truly interested in keeping kids in school, that's a good way to go. Now, we're moving just the last few minutes. Yeah, Would uh, people care to make s summation remarks? Where is this going to go? Uh, when we have this conversation in a month or two, where will we be at? Well, I think we'll be in a situation where the majority of schools in the Peterborough area have been shut down. 
right? I think that's what's coming in a month from now. I think that the governments at all levels are currently shooting themselves in the foot with the necessity of kids returning instead of continuing on with um, safe, safe, measurable opportunities right. for, you know, community and land-based learning, which again, I, I would say look to First Nations who are now the leaders in education yeah. in this country. And, and, and beyond that, look to, look to why we're prioritizing these sorts of things and why we're not then continuing things like CERB. We're not continuing the CESB for our post-secondary students. Programs that I think were very vital in, in us navigating the last four to five months um, the transition to EI will yep. be interesting to see when they get rolled out, but but really it's about preparing families and and uh, and parents for for what is going to happen when their child gets sick, when their teacher gets sick, what happens when their school is shut down for two weeks and they've gone back to a job and they have to scramble to find childcare. Right. These are all the questions that the government should be asking itself, and I don't believe that they are, and it's throwing everything on the wall and seeing what sticks just right. putting back into an unsafe situation it's putting teachers in a compromised position and again we're just shooting ourselves in the foot instead of continuing. all right anyone else last words yeah i i, I what's going to be i i don't know where we'll be next time we talk but i'm just wondering why we're dealing with all these issues near the end of august mm-hmm. when we've known since march that why we're dealing we with all these issues Regarding the schools, regarding the, the opening of the schools. Yes. And we have, I say, constantly moving, uh, you know, uh, these constantly changing recommendations and constantly changing targets. And why, yes. you know, on the 24th of August, when we're taping this, we're dealing with when the schools are open, you know, in a couple of weeks. Yes. I, I just think it's, I think it's, it's safely it's, because this isn't about, about getting kids back to school. Okay. It's about getting people back to work. And, and, and the, the, the kids are actually the ones that are, are... But we knew that we were going to be sending kids back to school, or oh, going yeah. to try to send kids back to school. Yeah. Lauren, go ahead. I don't know why we're... Yeah. Hey, that I, I sit around some tables with um, health and healthcare adjacent providers, and I think there's real concern among service providers about kids' mental health uh, and their emotional state through this. So... I appreciate that probably governments are thinking about the economy when they're right. talking about going back to school, but there is real concern among service providers about, you know, kids that they're not seeing, kids that maybe um, would normally get seen by a teacher and then maybe reported to children's aid societies or that there would be other structures coming into place. And that is not happening in the same right. way. And that's not to say that schools are the only way for that to happen, but it's been how it has happened. And so there, there are concerns that yes. there are other underlying pandemics and crises happening that we're not seeing. And I just, it's such a shame that we're having this conversation on August 24th about schools when we could have been, you know, talking about this and the government could have rolled out a plan far earlier. You know, the reason we're talking about it now is because it's a really, really, really difficult problem and there are no easy solutions. As a society, we put so much stake in public education. Our, our expectations are so high for public education. We expect so many different things from it. And that's, that's what the business is. That's what my job is. It's very expensive. It's very complicated. And it requires a great deal of improvisation and agility on a daily basis. It's not something you can easily manipulate and turn into something else. So as I want to keep repeating, the government has a real problem on their hands and it's not their fault. I just want them to deal with it honestly and let's have a straight conversation about it. That's all I ask. 
Okay, and on that note, we're going to have to wind up. So, uh, Jenny, Sean, Tim, Sylvia, Lauren, and Donald, thanks so much for joining me on this uh, panel discussion. So, until next week, that's September 3rd, this is Bill Temple. 